Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Living in Spain, working in football, you tend to speak to Spanish footballers about football. And if you do, what they'll say is that two of the greatest passers that they've seen, two who could fit straight into any top La Liga team, any Champions League winning team from Spain, into La Roja, Paul Scholes, obviously, and Michael Carrick, they always say, well, who says it? Xavi does. Iniesta does. Xavi Alonso does. They should know. So we thought... Let's speak to Michael Carrick. And when we did, he arrived at Manchester United's far-flung countryside Carrington training ground, opened the door, strode in, all six foot two of them, filling the room. Thanks for having me, he said. I knew we were in. What a guy. Thinking about Manchester United, have you ever wondered, while you've daydreamed about playing for them, what the pressure of arriving at that club is and what is expected of you? What kind of tests lie in wait for you? Not on the pitch, during the Premier League or Champions League games, but at work every day. Wait to hear about Carrick in the box. Not going to describe any more about it. And no, it's not like the class of 92 where Paul Scholes was put in the tumble dryer. Different, different altogether. The cast list? Well, it's not Hollywood, but there's, don't blame it on Rio, just Rio, Di Canio, Harry Redknapp. The concept of risk and one that we fluked on, I asked about the difference between Manuel Petit and Patrick Vieira, and Michael thought about it, thought about it, and then answered brilliantly. Team spirit, I guess you think that the team spirit when United were winning everything just was a natural product, or maybe it was because they were scared of losing and taking a bad result into Sir Alex Ferguson. Not so. There was a war game involved. Pick me up, used to be the shout on trips home on the plane, Pick me up until it woke up Sir Alex Ferguson somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, I don't know, with the players all shouting at each other for a game that they loved and a game which Michael Carrick reckons forged an unbreakable team spirit. When you hear him talking about it, you'll understand what I'm on about. And finally, one of the highlights of the big interview for all of us who produced it, Martin, Neil and I. I asked Michael to go back to Moscow in his mind and to talk through one of the things I'd always wanted to do if I'd ever made a professional footballer, what you want is a Champions League final. What do you mean you don't want a Champions League final in the rain in Moscow, balanced on penalties against a Premier League opponent? You don't. Well, I do. So I asked Michael what it was like. And believe me, listen, when he's telling us about it, he is back there. You will feel like you're speaking Russian, your hair is plastered to your skull with the rain, and that the world is on your shoulders and you don't already know that John Terry's going to slip and miss. Enjoy this one. We did. And Michael Carrick, I can't believe the privilege of you saying that during your uh, rehab back to fitness from 
nasty injury. I saw you get in Alicante. Then that you've taken the time and trouble to stop with a big interview. But if you don't mind, can we go back to somebody that we, we've established we hold in mutual affection? Because you know, recently we sat down with Harry Redknapp and I fulfilled a long-standing wish to, just to talk to him about his nature and about his attitude to football and his stories in football. It always makes me wonder, as a young man, as a relatively young man, who hasn't been able to stay at Newcastle, I think, because Kevin Keegan scraps the reserve team. You don't know where to stand. And in due course, you're coached by Harry Redknapp. What's it like to be to be coached by that man? What what's, what are the feelings you get immediately when you work for him? At the time, I appreciated it. First of all, I could never ever thank him enough because he's the one that had the faith in me and gave me the chance. And put me in a team, you know, we had Joe Cole, 18, 19, I was 18, 19. Frank Lampard was 19, 20. Rio was, you know, something similar. So to have the midfield of sort of me, Joe and Frank at that time, not many managers will put three kids in really in the heartbeat of the team, if you like, and I really can't thank him enough and he, he gave us that opportunity and he just backed me, you know, trusted me, believed in me and always encouraged me to play, no matter you know how the game was going, what the result, always encouraged me to play the right way. And yeah, I might not have been sitting here if it wasn't mm. wasn't for him to have started it all off. What does that mean when for him or for you when, when you talk about then encourage me to play the right way? What does that entail? He knew my strengths, you know. He had a style of play that he probably West Ham have, have been known generally for having um, over the years. He believed in that. He had players that, you know, he believed in talent, he believed in a bit of flair, you know, he believed in having that something different, bit of magic who, you know, it might not be consistent to an extent, but it's sort of entertaining and give you special moments. And I think it's just that's how he believed to play the game. And, and even if results weren't going so well, he, w- he wouldn't sort of. Um, Stop us from expressing ourselves, you know. He'd, he'd be happy for us to try things and learn the game, basically. And you know, you see some teams and they're rigid and organised, and in some ways they, that can stifle young talent in a way. But if you're getting the opportunity to, to play and express yourself, obviously guided at the same time, you know, if you're doing the wrong thing, then yeah, there's a there's a time and a place to learn from it and to be told to maybe go in a different direction. But um, pressures, managers are under and, mm-hmm. and results driven, but. So again, going back to have you of having the um, courage and the belief in us to put us in there and stick with us as well. Does that include because I think if you ever say to a young player or if you try to explain to somebody who hasn't had the luck to be in the football journalism world, so you, we get educated by you guys when you're mm. willing to share things with us. Do you sort of say because we're in a search for perfection at the moment, and you've got managers like Pep Guardiola and Luis Enrique who are who are like you know every day, every minute intent, but making mistakes. And allowing young, because you said allowing young players to do, treating mistakes in the right way and allowing you not to be stifled so that you will risk a pass, risk breaking a line, maybe risk walking forward with the ball into a space. If it doesn't always come off, then not, not saying, stop it, don't do it again. That, that's part of the process you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, even you know, going to get on the ball in areas where some others might not encourage it because they might see it as being risky or dangerous. And he always encourages us to play out from the back and to try and get it off the centre-offs and to... Basically, they can play it to our strengths, you know. Again, other managers go down the other route and they say that as a risk in the old sort of percentages game of playing their half or get the ball in the other team's box and all that type of thing. He was more of, again, just express yourself and, and take the ball in areas. And He trusted us to be good enough to develop and going to make mistakes, but we learned from our mistakes and I like to think that we improved through playing that way. Because there's a bravery that's come up in chats in this series where 
I think in Britain a lot of us think that bravery is you can you can take a challenge, you can take a kick, or you won't be intimidating the tunnel. But there's the bravery of, of going on the ball. For me, that's the most important of the two kinds of bravery, if you like. You know, it's, it's easier to, to go out there and sort of smash someone and tackle or push someone off the ball and, and, and you know, be aggressive in, in that way. That's, it's a lot easier but to take the ball in certain areas when you know if you, if you lose it, your, your team's going to be under pressure and, or if you've given the ball away a couple of times to, to go and try the same thing again and having that belief and that confidence to, um, to try it again and, instead of hiding and doing something the easy option and where he's playing the percentages and playing a long ball really when you know the right thing to do is trying to get on it and keep possession that way so it's I think we've seen it over the years and people have talked about it, the foreign players have always taken the ball they've all, mm. you know and big things have been made of it and our English lads or British lads you know do they play that way are we technically good enough and all that type of thing but I think a lot of it can be to do with the, the sort of the main mentality as well and, and being encouraged to do those things, even in the right, even in what people might think are the wrong areas. I was going to ask a question, but you've, you've thrown me because, you know, I was never a great player. But when I, as a youngster, one of the things like never, ever, ever pass across your box. You know, even as an eleven-year-old, yeah. your gym teacher, he'd punch you in the head. Yeah. My gym teacher would yeah. punch you in the head. And now, hold on, let's think. Not only Barcelona. But you see them playing six or seven different passes yeah. across the penalty area, and we're all thinking, well, yeah, because what's happening there is taking the pressure off, the other team's sucked in, and suddenly there'll be a killer pass away to Alba or Alvarez or Iniesta. And it's, it's literally taking the concepts where massively different ages, but when both of us were growing up, and tipped them on their head. As I said, I think it comes, obviously, you need, you need a certain level of ability to be able to play like that, but I think at the same time, a huge amount is the mentality and the mindset some players or some managers will be thinking about the other team you know where you look at teams that play from the back it's about them and getting yeah. on the ball and not worrying about so much of you know they're, they're getting the ball looking up and they're seeing their own players and they're seeing spaces to exploit whereas other teams might get the ball at the back and they just see the other team in front of them defending and it's almost like a fear type thing of yeah. a negative thing where I'm, I'm sure you know obviously Barca you know well they get the ball, they're not really looking and thinking, you know, there's 11 of other players in front of us, they're thinking, where's my next pass, where's my next option and, and where's the space and, and that's it's a way to sum it up, I think it's a mentality thing and obviously someone like Barcelona do it as good as anyone. One of the things that what I was about to ask there, and I'm not talking necessarily about you as youngster at West Ham, but maybe people you've also seen throughout your career, in one of the big interview podcasts we, we spoke to Chris Waddle, who grew up relatively in the same area as you played for the team you supported as a kid. And we think, I think, was properly a football genius. Mm -hmm. You know, just gave me utter happiness watching him. Very good football storyteller, funny man too. And he talked about Sheffield Wednesday when he just wasn't quite going past people with the same facility and the crowd going, oh. And he said it really, really weighed on his shoulders. So I, is in my mind it's when you talked about risk and spaces and taking choices. When you're young and you hear the crowd going, ah, oh, because you maybe missed three out of six passes or something like that, do, do you think people understand what that feels like? Because I think it must feel pretty sore. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I've had you know plenty times through your career where things aren't going quite well, and it definitely affects you. I mean, you try. I think it, it because certainly becomes easier the more experience you get. And, mm. I think that happens with, helps with being more consistent, but certainly in the early days, it can affect you. And I think it affects young players or can affect young players 
more than probably people realise who haven't been in that situation. I don't know whether it's an expectation or whether it's just overlooking the actual situation in terms of, you know, put yourself in their shoes and, you know, hugely talented, trying to do the right thing. Because of the young, you know, they're going to be a bit inconsistent. They're learning the game. They're going to make mistakes. You know, they need support. They need encouragement and, and showing a bit of trust. And, you know, at the first sense of doing something wrong, if, you know, the moans and groans and people get on your back, then that's not going to help the, you know, the lad develop. It's not going to help the team. But in some ways, that's just a natural reaction, whether it's a cultural thing, whether it's, you know, just how people see the game. I don't, I don't know what it is, but in terms of development youngsters, I think certainly the, the more encouragement, the, the more chance they're going to fulfil their potential. I can't stand any longer the opportunity to ask you about Palo de Canio. Because beginning to work with Harry at a relatively young age was an experience. I remember I, I met in New, New Palo when he came to Celtic from, from Milan. And I'm embarrassed to admit that Paolo thought I was the crazy one. <laughs> but what a genius for the football, what, what a volcanic man. Tell me about some of the experiences of training, the dressing room, what, what was he? Was well, it's like when I went back, when I was talking about Harry before, you talk about the type of player that he likes, you know, it's talent, you know, it's, it's entertaining, it's to keep on the edge of seats, people on the edge of the seats and giving special moments. You know, you're going to have ups and downs and I suppose that's what Paolo gives you and that's what he certainly give us. He's, some of the things that he'd done were just verging on ridiculous, really, in terms of how good they were. And the ability he had was something else. And yeah, he was, you know, he'd done some crazy things at times and said some crazy things. And but for us, growing up and training with him every day, to to see that level, I'd never seen anyone to that level before. Ability or intensity? Ability, abil- ability just mm-hmm. pure ability of what he could do on any given time, the way he could manipulate the ball. Just the things he could do on a football pitch. I'm not saying consistently, but I just think as a one-off, some of the things he could do was something that I had never seen so closely before. So um, for me, I just want you know you watch and you try and learn and you try and pick things up. Yeah, he, he was an incredible talent. Did he give you advice? Did you get on well? Did you fall foul of him? Did, did he was he easy to understand even? Yeah, I got on fine with Paolo. He's yeah, he was always good. He was never um, he, he was never negative towards the young lads. Yeah, of course, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd lose his temper and things weren't going so well. He'd, you could tell he wasn't happy, let's put it that way. But he never actually sort of... There was no isolated instance where, he, you know, he'd take it out on the young lads because he'd done something wrong. It was, it was more he'd generally be unhappy, but he was always encouraging us and he was always, yeah, encouraging us to express ourselves mm. and try things. And that's, that's how we played the game. You know, he, always, he tried things, he tried mm. crazy things that you think... What, what, how is he hoping to get away with that? But sometimes he did get away with it, and you know you celebrate an incredible goal, and that's what he was all about. And he gave Harry a, a career as an after-term speaker, talking about Paolo sitting on the pitch and saying, "I'm not going on anymore," yeah, yeah. and fighting was, with Frank th- for the penalty. I think, I think I was. Um, that was my early day. I think I was sub then. I remember him there, yeah, and Harry on the touchline and turning round. And just, didn't know what to do, you know, what, what do you do? Michael gets stripped. I think that was the first for everyone, you know, he was trying to keep him on, he was looking around to the bench to see what do I do, do I take him off to leave him on? And, and he's literally sitting yeah. in the pitch going, I'm not going on yeah, anymore. Yeah, the referee's I'm against us all. And yeah, he's blaming the referee, That's what, that was his problem, the referee. I seem to remember, Harry, because this is Harry's story, not mine. Hello, Harry. Yeah. 
but he seem to remember him saying that Paul came in at half-time and dressed him and tried to throw a, a bucket of gear in. It was too big and he <laughs> fell over. And, and <laughs> you know, this is the man who, who said, I was the crazy one when he saw me in action in Glasgow. No, he was, um, he's definitely a one-off, Paul Owen. Um, <laughs> some of the moments. Even around the training ground, you know, he, he was just crazy, but... Never had a problem or in any way, shape, or form with him at all. But, but an intense trainer. One of the things intense, I remember. Yeah, when, when he was, he was serious when he, about when his training. He, when he was on it, he was on it. Yeah. Yeah. When he trained, he was he was on it, and, and that was something else. He he brought sort of almost like his own trainer over at one point, um, and was working one on one with him. And for us, you know, there's a good crop of young lads there, and I think we looked to things like that. To say, oh, that's a little bit different, you know. What what are you doing there? And should we be doing that? Type mm. of thing? Should we be following him? And, so you try to pick things up. You don't take everything, of course, because you know you take what you can. But certainly in them early days, you know, he was an influence in, in many ways. One of the things that strikes me is you've you've basically spent a career playing football with your Ferdinand behind you, which must be a hell of a treat. One of the things that I was a little bit spoiled, to be fair. <laughs> my my eye can tell me that he's an elegant, technical, intelligent footballer. But when we spoke to Darren Fletcher, Darren was saying that maybe I'd misjudged about exactly how much of a leader also Rio became. Maybe a captain without an armband. Mm. Try to tell me things about Rio's character and skills and football ability that I don't know. He's a big winner, a huge winner. Um, whatever it was, it could literally be PlayStation, it could be cars, it could be game and training, it could be anything. And I wouldn't say he was a bad loser, because I, you know, I don't like using the word bad loser, because you shouldn't enjoy getting beat. Um, mm. But he was—he uh, didn't enjoy losing at all. He was—it um, was all about winning. And uh, yeah, Fletcher's right. He's, he was a definite leader. He was a huge influence in the dressing room, on and off the pitch, just as much off it as, as on it. And he had every everything you could ever want in the in the centre half. For me, he was—he's the best that that I've seen. He was—he he just played most games in second or third gear. He really didn't. He was so comfortable and just cruised through games. And so he had all the attributes and the ability, but he was. There was something really deep into driving him on and that type of thing rubs off on everyone. And this was certainly the right place for him to, to be to be able to do that. At West Ham and Hill, what do you do in your position? Whatever over the span of your career you were asked to do, because you've been asked to do some slightly different things in the same positional role. What do you do with a guy like that behind you? What do you what are the, how does it influence the choices you make? What position you take, when you do and don't offer the ball? needing to know when he wants to come forward with it and you maybe have to get out of the way or you have to say to him, stop taking it off you. What's the process there? I think it starts, there's, there's almost the appreciation of um, what the other one wants, you know. I sort of understand where Rio would prefer me to be. Mm -hmm. In certain situations, I know, you know what would suit him. I think he knew what would suit me. And it's not always just doing what you think you should do, you know. It's, it's thinking about those around you. And, Say, for instance, when it was sort of Rio and, and Vida playing and we had sort of a little triangle going there, we, we had the understanding of we just sort of knew where the other two would want, I knew where the other two would want me and they probably knew where. It was just that understanding and it wasn't, it's not an individual then. You, you're not thinking about just what you're doing, you know. You, and obviously the confidence having Rio behind you gives you to just to play and constantly talk and constantly telling you left or right, simple things, but constantly involved and sort of engaged together, you know, working together. He was a big talker on the pitch. I mean, you get all you get these players that shout and scream when the ball's gone dead and probably more for effect than anything, but when the game's going on and you're giving people little bits of information, you know, it's invaluable and 
that's really when it counts, to be honest. And, and Rio was probably one of the best I've come across at that. See, that's one of the reasons we're here, because you know the fame of people is aside from the contributions that they can tell. The people who are in love with football, but don't have never played at your level, never will. And we, often, even if you do that in an amateur game, we can't see or hear that because of the noise or we're watching games we can't afford to mm. on television. That idea of you know you being a second brain for somebody in front of you to left, him being a second brain for you, just in that communication, you, you said invaluable. I mean, can you expand on what you do and don't say and how often you speak? Not the shouting, but the information sharing. Yeah, I think getting to that stage, in some ways, you need to be lucky that you know you you understand each other and you're on a certain wavelength. I think you you could probably do that for a number of years with another player and it doesn't quite work because you, you, maybe you don't understand each other or you just see the game differently or for that reason it, for us it just it just clicked you know there was an understanding there and it, it can be things just sitting here like we are now you know I'm having a coffee or having a bit of lunch and you're just talking about football and it's not necessarily we're having a sit down meeting and we're talking about tactics and what do you do there what do you do there and I think over time you gain an understanding with each other and then you talk about the game little bits yeah and it, it just just evolves really and takes a bit of time and yeah, I think there's an almost that relationship that just happens, you know, when you click with someone and you're on that same wavelength and that develops over time. But I presume one of the fundamental parts, because I've met a lot of footballers who are good at your art and earn lots of money and will win trophies, but we aren't particularly in love with their profession or can do it, but not necessarily after they've done their training and they've played the game, they don't necessarily like to stay and dissect it like you've been talking about. It, for that relationship in anybody's case, not just you and Rio, that to grow and for the blend to come, presumably what you both need to be is pretty much hooked on breaking down football and how to play it, how to play against it, what you did like, what you didn't like, yeah, changes uh, in trend. You've, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I suppose it's an understanding, but it, you've got to want to, or you've got to think about it. And even training, you know, something could happen in training, we sit in the changing room and it's probably someone getting a bit of stick, but I think someone loses and you give them a bit of stick. Why did you do that? Why did you mm. do that? And it's all fun, and you're sort of laughing in a way about it. But by doing it that way, sometimes that everyone's learning from that without realising it. You know, that develops over time. It's not necessarily you're sitting someone down one on one and you're saying, you know, you should have done that. Why didn't you do this? Yes. It's not. It's it's not like a formal way of doing it. Yeah. It's an informal way of doing it, and no one really probably realised that it was happening like that. But I think because you've got such a good spirit between each other. That is constantly developing all the time. You told me the last time I was here, and it really, really struck me. Because I think you imagine from a distance, you sign for Manchester United, and you're like, well, I better lift my game, or it's Red Shirt, or the, the, the passion of the crowd, or, well, it's the boss, it's Fergie. I you said it was, it was the day-to-day -day intensity of having to cut it with Skulls and Kegs and Keane or whoever, whoever it might be, yeah. probably every man in that group. Yeah. And that changed you or made you focus or made you more maybe nervous coming to training every day but I've got to be on it is that yeah definitely that for me the, in some ways the the biggest test was coming in your first few days in training and, and doing the box describe you know, the box five, five, so it's 10 by 10 square basically you've got two lads in the middle six or seven lads on the outside uh, yeah it doesn't have to be six or seven can be four but you know depends on numbers and it's basically keeping the ball off the two in the middle one playing one touch and I've seen boxes over the years and it, it's a bit flicky, you know, people are trying to do skills, they give the ball away, it's all a bit fun, trying to nutmeg people and all that type of thing. And You know, it's, it's seen of a bit of a mess about type thing. But And I came here and it was 
you know, there was a bit of giggling, it was a bit of fun, but at the same time, it, it was a test. It was a real test, and there's no hiding place in that box. And if you couldn't quite live up to the standards that they were setting in that box, then you know you'd get quickly found out. And I've I've seen players through the years. That type of thing really affected them. And who've come from the old box with, you could say, you know, the older lads in it, and gone into the younger box because it wasn't quite, you know, they didn't quite like that intensity of it. Where from I straight away I wanted to be in that box. I wanted to, mm. you know, I thought they were the best players. You know, Giggsy, Scolzi. Ollie, Rio, thought that's where I want to be and test myself and you know they're smashing it at you and you've got to deal with it and as long as it's within touching distance for you or get a ball you've, you've got to deal with it and I just found that as the real test it was almost winning the lads over if you like mm-hmm. winning their trust that you know the managers obviously bought you the club paid some money for you and you think you're good enough but day to day you know it's about winning over your teammates you've got to play with them every week and I think that was that was a as small as it sounds, that was a it was a huge thing, and, and I've spoke to other players, and they say similar things as well. Have you had box sessions out there or Friday training games often, which are more intense than Saturday Sunday Premier League games? Yeah, without doubt, yes. And that was a little bit different because the training's just structured a little bit different. But um, sort of before we'd we'd have a pretty much a free game of nine v nine, ten v ten on a, the day before a game, which again it's in some other times I've been involved in that if a manager just done that you get some people who are trying some people wouldn't you know some people not really interested and not always great where here it was yeah 10 v 10 and it was not a full pitch it was a small pitch but it was it was intense and again it was a test you know it's sometimes the, the gas well the games on the Saturday were easier than yeah. the, the, the training and yeah I realized that quite quickly and from probably being one of them where you know you I always felt I was I was trying and training I was always trying and training I always felt that and I had it in my mind to try and learn and train and be consistent but coming here I had to just take that to another level and probably realised before that I wasn't quite at that level and I wasn't doing it as but I didn't know anything different then you know yeah. and I came here and I, and I always thought I'd learn I always looked at Giggsy Scolzi again same names Gary Neville Rio and looked at them Ollie and thought you know what do they do you know, how are they so good? What makes them so good? And I always thought, I need to learn off these and I need to take it on board. And almost, I, I was aware how lucky I was to have the opportunity to come here anyway. Obviously, you know, you, to yeah. a certain extent, you've earned it and I, and I know that, but still to get the opportunity to play and learn from the, the lads, I was, you've got to make the most of that, haven't you? You've done what you do in midfield. I, I don't know if you're aware, but you've thrown me a nice little dummy in that. I was away on another path, but you've twice glowingly mentioned Ollie, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer, and not for his goal record or coming off the bench or 99, but for his football. Is he one of those players whose actual ability and reading of the game, do I read that that's underestimated by people? Yeah, he was, he's a terrific player, Ollie. I think he's, he's obviously known for his finishing and his finishing was up there with the best I've seen. Not necessarily eye-catching in terms of he'd be curling it top left, top right-hand corner and he just had the knack of speaking to him and, and hearing him talking. He was one of them that he thought about it and through legs, you know, he'd, he'd shoot through legs. I love that. Um, I love that, yeah. It wouldn't be nice necessarily um, pure, clean strike, but he'd get it through legs and he'd find the bottom corner and he'd find the bottom corner. And you think, that's not lucky, that, you know, that's something that he's worked on. And as I say, it doesn't always look like it's, you know, the special goal of the season or anything like that, but it was every time you'd find the bottom corner and you'd find a way through the gap and at certain times he'd, he'd hit it straight at the goalkeeper and 
through the goalkeeper's legs when it wasn't it wasn't luck because he as I say looking at him and, learn, and sort of listening to him it was something that he really thought about and I'm, I'm not sure you know an awful lot of players would actually think like that you know he went a bit deeper than that and yeah I think I think so Alex has said when he was on the bench you know Ollie would always look at the game and think right when I'm coming on where's my chances what can I do how can I sort of manipulate the best chances for myself and he'd, he'd study the game and well his record proves and goal scoring and what he, what he was like that. We're not in the box, but I'm going to ping one out you now to see how your touch is. Who's Havoc? Havoc. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it's a serious question because... It's a good question. I've <laughs> never had that question before in my life. I, 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 I can't reveal my sources Yet. Fletch. No, <laughs> it's garbage, Fletch. <laughs> no, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, he was, I don't know what he was. Was he? I think he, I'd like to know. He was Hairwire, I think. <laughs> or Jack, Jack Bauer. Whoa, you know whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Fletch, that's payback. You've just had there, you've been done. No, I'll, t- I can, I'll uh, tell you where it's from. With the, with the purpose of my question, in just to have fun, you, you, you talked about earning your spurs in the box mm. and earning trust, whatever. But there are moments when you need to build team spirit and make people who are shy come out. Mm. So therefore, back to Haywire and Havoc and, yeah. and explain <laughs> it for the, for the people, please, who don't know um, what's going on. <laughs> I'll try my best. We had um, the PSPs, which were like little sort of handheld PlayStations a few years back. And uh, there was a game called SOCOM. It was like a bit of an army game, but it was the only game you could play against each other. You could get like eight v eight just playing against each other. So a lot of the other games was you go and do missions and all that type of thing. But the boys found a game so we could all play together. All right. So you'd flick like the flick the button and it would be all wireless and we'd all connect in the same bit. So we'd be sitting on the coach or sitting on the train or flying Champions League games or something and we'd flick them on and pretty much a lot of the time we'd be getting six v six, seven v seven. So you know, that's pretty much two thirds of the squad mm. playing the game. Exactly. It's not everyone's cup of tea, so there's a few lads that didn't play it, but but straight away there was just a togetherness and a spirit. Yeah. So we obviously we all had names, you know, and there was a wide variety of names <laughs> to get into it. Some which must remain secret. <laughs> yeah, we keep a couple of secret, but mine was mine was havoc. I don't know where it come from. But, um, and yeah, it was. It sounds a little thing, but. Literally every, every time we went on a coach, every time we went on a train, whether it's half an hour, whether it's three hours, the game would get played and we'd be into it. And in hotels, we'd, it was even known to like, whoever had rooms next to each other, one team would go in one room, one team would go in the other room. <laughs> and if it worked through the wall, then we'd play against each other. And yeah, that, that was it. It was a, a simple concept, but um, that was probably 2006 to maybe 2009 when we played that for about three or four years. And then we sort of grew out of it after that, but it just it just created a real spirit, and that's from young lads who are coming into the squad, you know, 18, 19 year old, straight away they're in, you know, they're in. It's something to talk to us about, something to laugh about, something to give them stick about, and yeah, it was it was it was, it was a massive thing for us in the, in the dressing room. You can imagine the. I bet there are people now think I'd love to play that, mm. but I, I guess it also fought off two enemies as well, which would have been the boredom that I guess the general public don't understand how, and it sounds rubbish even when I say it, life in a plane, life in a hotel yeah. can be. Yeah, you don't, it's one of them things, you know, you can't really complain about it too much because but, but it is a fashion. But when you're in it, it's, yeah, it's not an easy thing to deal with all the time. And something like that, instead of thinking, oh, we're on another plane for three hours, the boys were getting excited and we're going, come on, let's pick the teams we're on. Who's, you know, who's going to be the best this and that, who's going to be MVP? And, 
so yeah, there was an enthusiasm and, a, and an excitement about it instead of all sitting there with whatever it was, DVDs, iPads, headphones on. Solitary. Yeah, and then you wouldn't, no one would speak to each other for three hours type mm-hmm. thing. It was a way of just getting everyone together and I'll be honest, there was times when it got a bit loud and a bit, the boss shouted back a few times to, to shut up. <laughs> Sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't. Well, if he just... played, what would his? Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave that one alone. I'll let you pick him. That was a bad one. I, no, I'll I'll take you, that back. You can pick him. We, we can work. We can work. <laughs> Sorry, Alec. Um, <laughs> the other one, I guess, the other enemy, I guess it might have fought on some occasions, although you'd have gone more used to dealing with, is, is tension. Because nerves and tension, particularly, say, for the most crucial semi-finals or you've got to go to Arsenal way or you've got to play a Champions League final, whatever it is, tension is a real thing and can affect players, no matter your experience, in, in really dangerous ways. Is that fair? Yeah, or? yeah, I think there's a sort of large scale of, you know, in one at the top, people really relish it and, and can bring out mm. the best of them. At the real, other end of the scale, then people can really suffer from it and it, it can really affect them quite badly. And Because it was so relaxed and so friendly, for, going back to the early years here, it was... I think everyone just embraced it and brought out the best and most and that was our way we were dealing with it really One of the things I mentioned there was Champions League finals and I, I don't really want to go into the losing ones at all but sure, I, you won't I do I do have it strikes again <laughs> I do want to that was 8 one there I do want to get your appreciation of some of the guys that you've played against to play in at least similar roles to you because in the past, you've spoken really eloquently about maybe having grown up, not necessarily being the guy who wanted to put the big tackle in or go face-to-face or chest-to-chest or whatever, maybe there's things that Roy would always do so well. Mm. But once you had to do them, quite enjoying them, mm. and you share a view I've got, which is that the art of the tackle's kind of being stamped out of the game, which is yep. just horrendously yep. disappointing. I saw a company a couple of seasons ago sent off at Manchester City for a brilliant tackle. I was furious. I got a big row on Twitter, and, and tackling can't be allowed to die, can't. But once we've established that you were able to do those things, you were also able to do the things that, that we all go crazy about when we see Xavi or Busquets or Perlo. Tell me about some of the ones you appreciate. Like, and if you don't mind, can we start with Busquets? What's it like to play against him? And what is it that you appreciate that he does so well that so few people inside and outside the game properly understand? Yeah, no, obviously I'm a huge fan of him. Um... If you if you look at him, he just makes the game look so simple, so easy. He doesn't really do any eye catching, 40, 50, 60 yard passes. He, um, but it's gone back to the bravery thing before. He doesn't really go flying into tackles. He, you know, he's he's not really an aggressive player, but he's just he's just got that knack of, of getting the ball and in, in any part of the pitch, keeping the ball and generally takes one or two touches, moves the ball on. Which again looks quite simple, and you think, oh, he's, what's, he do, what's he doing with the ball? But put yourself in that position, everything's flying around you 100 miles an hour. Mm. He gets on the ball and he pops it off, and he, his awareness of space and his awareness of the opposition and manoeuvring the ball to give himself time and positioning himself to give himself time, he's, you know, it's a real art and someone that I can appreciate an awful lot. I guess in the majority of games against him, you haven't been able to pick yourself. Close one on one, you're almost like yeah, a, not really a mirror image other, yeah. of each other, aren't you? Yeah. So is it frustrating to be that close and not be able to close it, or to just to suffer it? What's it like when you play against him? No, it's not frustrating because you know that's just that's just how it is. It's just, um, sometimes too big of a distance and 
tactics, you know, the dictate of you know where you can go, where you can't go. But um, yeah, I just think he's he's courage and he's he's sort of built his self belief to just keep getting on the ball and keep playing. And then when he loses it, you see the reaction of not just him but the players around him of, of pressing the ball to get it back mm. quick. So yeah, as I said, I'm I'm a big admirer of him. I suppose for all the gifted, gifted footballers you've played with, you maybe wouldn't swap one of them. But if you're Busquets and you've regularly played with Iniesta and Xavi on either side, for a player in that position, in your position, what does it give you when you've got guys of that genius around you? Do you self-sacrifice to say, not only am I going to choose the right option, but I'm going to let them play because that's good for the team? Oh, 100% me. For me, yeah, 100%. I mean, I got, I got a lot of stick in my early time here. When I first came for passing for passing the Scalzi too much, and I wasn't playing my game, and I wasn't saying what I was doing for Tottenham, and I was probably the the player that was on the ball the most and trying to create things and trying to you know play more imaginative passes maybe or risky passes and longer passes and stuff. But I got United and I had Scalzi next to me. Why wouldn't you use Scalzi? Hmm. Yeah, people were saying that I was taking an easy option and giving it to Scalzi, but. <laughs> Why wouldn't you give it to Paul Scholes if you can give it to Paul Scholes? And so that's the way I see it. I was trying to bring up the, you know, give it to Scholes, and it was, that was best for the team. Of course, yeah, it wasn't just about me giving it to Scholes all the time, but I think I had that appreciation that, you know, his what he wanted and his strengths, and that's how I saw it. It wasn't a case of I've got to step up and be something else because I'm to overshadow them because I'm playing with great players. It was a case of I'm stepping into this team to try and make the team better and by that I wanted to play to their strengths. Well I'm going to embarrass you a little bit not deliberately but we've all got egos so it's a very easy decision to say well you know for a couple of times I want to keep the ball and try and do something with yeah. it because we like the approval yeah. of but also it takes an, it takes what you talked about earlier about all about Rio yourself but thinking enough to analyse and know what the team needs so you can say well if I'm going to give it to whoever it might be whether it's Royer whether it's Scholes or Giggs or whoever's around in that instance it's because I'm making a choice for the team. You have to think about that choice because mm. you're certainly not giving it away because you don't want it. You, mm. you actually, in your case, I bet you, you wanted to use the bit yeah, more. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you, yeah. Everyone would love to do something, grab the headlines, and not so much grab the headlines, but do something, you know, really special, win the game for the team, mm. for the lads, you know, and, and do something like that. But for me, that that was my feeling of this is the best way to do it. I had Cristiano on the right, and I had Wayne in front of me and Scalzi next to me, sort of the position we played that year. And, so, yeah, give the ball to them as much as possible. Which of the guys that you played against in your early days who, not the dinosaurs, but the beasts, the guys who could really, really mix it and you had to be so strong and brave to go up against, could, could also make the transfer if you could click a switch and change their era? Because I presume you played against Roy several played against, times. Yeah, played against Vieira, very, very, yeah. very early in your it. career. It's funny, actually, talking about that, one of my friends just put a picture on, uh, I think it was Instagram the other day, of a team sheet from May 2000, it was, Arsenal against West Ham. There was a few names on that, like Tony cool. Adams, Lee Dixon, Vieira playing, Ray Parler, Petit was on the bench, must have been rested. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that made me think a little bit, I thought, yeah, that was, that it was almost a different breed of player. quite early in your career, isn't that it? Was, I think that was about the second or third game for West Ham, yeah. Overmars was playing, Carnu was playing. Bergkamp a few years ago now. What that. became of it? Did they end with the makers players that lot? Yeah, what an eleven that yeah, is. Not bad, is think it? of the skill and the grit. But, and the... but it made me think, you know, like like you say, Vieira and Petit, that that centre midfield for Arsenal was um you know, they could 
do a bit of everything, couldn't mm-hmm. they? You, would, you couldn't really class them as a... Where now, in midfielders, throughout the world, I think you almost get classed. Are you defensive? Are you, are you attacking? Are you slightly a, a wide midfielder? You know, you come into categories, really. Where then it was just, can you do the lot, do everything? And like you say, Keane, Vieira, they were the two really probably standouts. That, uh, what was different between them? Because I remember, I remember when I was still reporting in England before I moved to Spain, I remember Sir Alex coming out and very clearly saying, before it became evident, before Petit's form maybe dipped and he went to Barcelona, it didn't happen, how strongly he saw Vieira as an all-round leader, athlete, footballer ahead of Petit. At a time when, for my dull eyes, the gap was much, much narrower. Mm-hmm. From watching them and from playing against them, what were the differences in their two games? Um, yeah, it's a tough one, really. Made me think now, aren't you? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I'm intrigued. I'm genuinely yeah, intrigued. No, I know no. it's a long time ago. I just remember Petit used to love the little dink over the top, didn't he? He was either over Mars or Lundberg, uh, just making that little diagonal run, and he had that little ball. Maybe he had a bit more finesse than Vieira, maybe, mm. in term, um, for that, but look at Vieira he could, he could pretty much do do the lot mm-hmm. I think goal goals made goals but yeah that one thing that does stand out with Petit was just that little dink with a bit of backspin and he'd mm-hmm. just be dinking it over the top for, for them running through and he, he sort of had that bit of class about him and Vieira was just almost horrible to play against at that stage you know he was he was aggressive when he was he was fiery he was leggy so you know, this, this, this leg appeared from nowhere. Wiry type, you know. He, he, yeah, he was just awkward, wasn't he? Horrible to play against. And when I say horrible, I don't mean horrible. No, no. You didn't enjoy it. I mean it was, yeah. it was tough. You know, this, it was real tough. This is the reason that Sir Alec would always say that you know when you went down to the Arsenal those days, yeah, you had to be prepared for a sports version of a little war. Yeah, not a war, but everybody had to be not just on their game and fit, but at it yeah, mentally yeah, it as well. Otherwise, you could be, in, one could be intimidated. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, as a pair, they, they sort of complement each other yeah, fantastic, didn't they, together. I think um, if you look at sort of Roy Keane, he had the sort of the burst through the middle. He would just drive through the middle of the pitch mm. a lot of the time without the ball and, and arrive in the box. And I've seen so many times where he'd play a one-two and he'd, just, he'd play the ball and he'd just keep driving through and he'd end up getting on the end of it. Mm. He had that way, probably the other two maybe didn't have that so much. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably tough to choose. I mean, what, obviously speaking to the boys here and, and sort of what Roy brought to the team, not just his actual attributes or what he had, but his sort of, it's just his leadership and how he dragged the team through certain situations or pretty much on his own. You know, that's something pretty special. And then we've got a manager like Sir Alex and you've got a captain like him. You're going to have to be pretty scared to bring a bad performance into the dressing room, are you? Because you know you may not escape with, your, with all your limbs intact. Yeah, it's a tough school. It's a tough school. You made me laugh because you, you reminded me that Manuel Petit, when, when I was still reporting in Scotland, Walter Smith was a Ranger manager, and he, he, was, he was very frank about his scouting trips, whatever, and he, he went down to Monte Carlo to sign Petit from Monaco, and everything was suit where the club were up for it. It was a good fee in those days. The uh, trouble was nobody had told uh, Petit. And... Um, when he heard, without Walter's knowledge, that Rangers deal was about to be accepted, he, he manufactured a big old um, dentist appointment. And at some stage, an urgent phone call took place between Manuel Petit and Arsene Wenger. And um, before Rangers could do the deal, Arsenal came in and signed oh, him. Right, so yeah. Walter Smith missed out on yeah. Emmanuel Petit because of uh, fake yeah. teeth problems. S- such, such, such is the transfer market. Yeah. 
I don't want to, I'm far from want to chase you out of the room, but if you're very tolerant, because I have already asked you about this before, but it fascinates me. Moscow. The idea of two English clubs, Manchester United yearning to do what Sir Alex Ferguson said that under his reign is probably his biggest regret, which is not wanting the Champions League more for, not for him, but for, he said, this club mm-hmm. should have more. We should be yeah. up with Milan, we should be up with Bayern Munich. <clears throat> You've got to, and it's an English club, and it's in Roman Abramovich's kind of domain. As an experience, that must have been pretty weird, having a Premier League game in Moscow, in the rain, with all the tension and the penalties. What are the things, apart from lifting the cup, that stand out to you from the build-up, getting out there, on your, what's on your mind, what your goal on the day is, your personal objective about how you want to play and what you want to produce? Well, when it was Chelsea, the first thing that... Um I was thinking about it. We, we lost to them in the FA Cup the year before. Drogba, um, no? Drogba, yeah. Last minute of, near enough, the last minute of mm. extra time was late on in the game. And it um, wasn't a good game, didn't really play that well. And we had won the league, and I said to myself after that game, whether we lost the edge or not, because we had won the league and we enjoyed winning the league. And so the next year, after, after winning the league, celebrated winning the league, but I was sort of telling myself, I almost trained harder, put more effort in, and trained harder once we won the league for the final instead of maybe the year before it was more of we'll get ready for the final we'll relax a bit we'll you know and I was determined not to make the same mistake if you like mm-hmm. so that was my first thought and then yeah getting to Moscow the build up to Moscow and, and everything that surrounded it was, was obviously was, was huge but never really let myself get too carried away with it if you, and yeah it, get, I remember getting to training the night before at the stadium and Bags of energy, loads of enthusiasm, you know, excited to be there. But at the same time, it, f- it felt quite comfortable. It didn't feel like we were... Yeah, didn't feel maybe how you'd expect it to feel. You might think, oh, this is big and tension, like you are talking about earlier mm-hmm. on and all that type of stuff. It felt quite quite normal almost. And that's, I think that's down to the manager and how he makes you feel. And we went through the normal routine, you know, done a bit of crossing and finishing, a quick little game back to the hotel. and. And then that was that was the longest, you know, it's a long day building up to that final. That it, it's a long day, but even then, it, it, as big as it felt, it was more. I was more going back to the year before and thinking that's not going to happen again. You know, mm. that's not going to happen again. So that was my main thought. It wasn't so much of we need to win this. You know, if we lose, this is going to happen. And, and the whole scenario with everything that surrounded it, it was more of a case of I lost. It. We we got beat off them in the cup final last year. And this is what happened. I can do that better. This and that. And, that was really my main focus going into the game. Pouring of rain. Does that yeah, distract or tire you or cool you? I've um, always wondered what that... <laughs> I mean, in a big game. Yeah, we we kind of get used um, to it here, but... I think it's quite nice sometimes playing in the rain. Um, but, yeah, by the time you're going into the you know, late doors, 120th minutes, you've pretty much got nothing left. You're yeah. pretty much gone, you know. I mean, a final like that, by that stage, you yeah, you're never really going to have much left. But um, and it was a, it was quite an up and down game. From first half, we came out, we were we were brilliant. First half, absolutely brilliant. We could have been probably two or three up, and it would have been quite fair. And then they scored right before half time. On that, I, I'm not being pertinent because I know Frank reasonably well. But you initially grew up with Frank. Yeah. Could you allow yourself to be aware of the emotion of that moment, from given that you know is is. He dedicated the goal to his mum. Yeah. Recently died. Did, can yeah. that enter in your head or? 
At that time, I'm totally honest, no. Yeah. Not that time. That's what I imagine no. the answer yeah, is. Yeah, no, I didn't at that time. Um, yeah, obviously, it's you know the bigger picture outside of it. Then. Yeah, it means you know. an awful lot more than that. But at that at that stage, no, it was solely about that game. Because you literally got it to be focused on. Yeah, it was all about, it was all about that game. Yeah, it was all about um, my first thought was what could I have done because Frank was pretty much my man. But in the end, you know, it's took a deflection. It's gone yeah. to and it one of them things. It wasn't really much I could do. But that was my first reaction. You know, what could I have done? But. Um, but yeah, the first half it went great. Felt really calm, really fine, confident. I thought we were playing some really good football, controlled the game, and um, yeah, that goal before half time changed changed the game. They had probably the better of the second half, um, some chances, and as the game's gone on, it's getting towards the end. It's just what myself don't, you know, keep pushing, keep keep believing, which. As a club, as a team, we always done it. We always stayed positive, and even in the, even in the moments when we were under pressure and stuff like that, I never really. Sometimes, sometimes in games, you just feel like you, you're not going to lose, you know. And sometimes you get that feeling without wanting to get that feeling that you think it's just some, something's not right today. But that just didn't really enter my head. And I think they hit the post. I think they hit the crossbar. And even then, it was I was still thinking, we'll, you know, we'll win this, keep going. And, um, and then obviously got to the end and it was penalties and um, looking back I've, after the game I was I was proud that I've actually, that I'd put myself forward and um, penalties are a horrible thing to, to do I was, I was I was sort of pleased straight away I said I'm taking one this I'm not I'm not I don't want to shy away from it I don't want to look back and think I wish I'd have taken one um, and so I was 100% I was taking a penalty and Horrible, horrible, horrible. <laughs> I was trying to put you in a good place with this question. Horrible. I, 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 I'm just trying to go let through me get, the night as it happened, but I, and it's flooding that, that in. Was there. Yeah, that's Can the I tell you you're not alone in the World Cup final where I was, I was working? I was lucky enough to know the players reasonably well, and PK said after having won the World Cup and burst into tears with his mum at the touchline, he admitted without a second's hesitation about 20 minutes after the final that he said, my knees were knocking. He said, my legs went at the prospect of penalties. Yeah. So I was praying that we get a goal before the penalties because he said his just legs went to complete yeah. jelly at the prospect Yeah, Horrible, penalties. horrible feeling. But I remember Drogba getting sent off pretty much five minutes before the end of the game. Start thinking it's could go to penalties now and telling myself to be positive about it, you know. not It's easy to think, oh, no, penalties, mm-hmm. you know, what can happen here? This can happen, this can happen. So I was consciously t- trying to get myself into a frame of mind of, right, you're going to take a penalty. This is what you're going to do. You're going to score. Don't worry about it. This is it. So that was what a few minutes to go. And so I was ready for it. It wasn't it wasn't a nice feeling because thoughts keep you in your mind, you know. And, the walk. Um, the walk. So I took this. Carlos scored his. I took the second penalty, and I was just I remember putting the ball. I, I ran up there. I jogged up there because I thought oh, it's too far. It's too long. Too long to wait if you walk. So. <laughs> Get this done as quick as I can get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've had a jog up, put the ball on the spot. Peter Check looked massive in the goal. He must have he filled looked massive, that goal. Yeah. I remember constantly going, you're just training now, this is training. Took plenty of penalties in training. This is what you're going to do, no problem. I can picture it now, telling you, I can Seriously. picture that sort of, that time, and I thought, yeah, this is it now, penalty. Hopefully it goes the wrong way. <laughs> that would help. <laughs> And that was it, yeah, that's, that was my thought. I'm just training here, yeah. forget about everything else. This is what you're doing, training. Thankfully for me, it went in and 
you go back and you just you're hoping for all the boys. The, the relief's huge. The relief, that feeling, the instant feeling you get, even though it's not over, just to think that's I've, I've done what I've had to do. Which was know? predominant, the feeling of successfully putting in the net, the feeling of not having let anybody down, including yourself. Yeah, I think it's I think it's more of, of the lads for starters, leaving the boys on the halfway line. You're going up there, you know, for them basically. First and foremost for the lads, and then obviously it extends from that. And it was at our end of the ground with all our fans as well. First and foremost, I think it's for the boys to know that you've done everything you can to help. And then we got, I remember getting back to the halfway line, and obviously Ronaldo missed, and I was watching them all, and then um, it wasn't going well <laughs> at that stage. We were. Um, yeah, that was it. We were going out. Well, I say we were going out. We, we lost. We had lost basically. And JT was was walking up, and I thought something's got to change here. We're going out. I thought I'm not going to look now. So I looked at the floor for the first time. I didn't watch the penalty. And I remember I had my arms, my arms. I think it was Real. I think over his shoulders and someone else. And looking down at the floor, I've got, got a picture in the house about it. And obviously JT missed, and I didn't look at any penalty after that. And then that was it. Obviously, Ronaldo missed and. I've said, I've said it before, that feeling once once he missed up pen and just the elation and the emotion I, I went through was I could could never possibly go through that feeling again. Even if I won it again, I don't think I'd, I could ever replicate that feeling. It was just, um, it was incredible. I mean, I've got a little thing in the house where there's five or six photos of the, the lads in the half-fire line in the line and sort of me with my head down and then obviously the reaction of the boys when they realised and, and I was obviously last to react because they just gone off and left me and I was still with my arms in the air. <laughs> so the lads just still on the shoulders, yeah. One for all, forget it, man. It's... And uh, obviously the lads have burst off, sprinted down towards Edwin and I've sprinted down, screaming arms everywhere, just everyone's piling on the pitch, jumping on everyone. And I've probably lasted about, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute maybe, where you're all going crazy. And I, and I remember a minute now, I've walked towards the side and our families were standing at the side. And I remember that feeling, I just, I was finished. I didn't know whether, I was a wreck. I didn't know whether to, to keep shouting, to, to laugh. And for the first time probably in my life, to have that feeling of, on a football fit, to cry. Mm-hmm. Didn't know whether to cry or not. And not that I didn't know when, I almost felt like I could cry, I could do anything. Mm-hmm. I was just in a, I was a wreck. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, what's going on here? I think it was just pure exhaustion for starters. And then, obviously, just everything. That's, you've just had the biggest rush of my life. To, and then it's just, quickly come down and I was standing there thinking, what's going on here? I, I just felt I could lie on the floor and just fall asleep. <laughs> I felt, I just felt wrecked. And then um, obviously that, for a few seconds that was, felt like it just but it was probably about five seconds and then, and then that was it. And you know, you go back to the boys and gather your thoughts and celebrate with everyone. But um, it was a mad feeling. Two really remarkable insights for me as a listener. And I asked because I wanted to know you hear sportsmen and women talking about the power of positive thinking a lot, but to be able to put it in reins that night the way you did and say, it's training, I'm going to score before the final whistle, maybe it's only had a 80% influence in your score because your technique mm. is probably maybe, the, maybe a bigger than 80% influence in it going in. And maybe fate's in there too, I don't know. I'm beginning to believe in that the more yeah. I listen to guys and their stories. But... Power positive thinking and, and what emotion can do to you in terms of the way you behave, 
when victory's taken away from you, when knowing how to cope with victory, I think can be quite difficult, particularly when if you've got family there or if it's been something you've been yearning after mm. for so long. And I remember watching the manager's face as he, he was wearing that white tracksuit yeah. and, and he was hair plastered over, and he kind of just bounded down the stairs as if, I knew we were going to win this one because he's had desperate nights before. But he looked as if I've seen this all before. It was, he looked as if emotion wasn't washing over him at all. And that on the night, I was like, he's got many powers, but did he know this was going to yeah. happen? Was, <laughs> oh, yeah. He's not that good, is he? <laughs> he can't be that good. <laughs> he can't be. He can't be. Maybe the, the way to finish is that I know the, way in, the exact way in which you could feel all that again and go through all that again. Yeah. We should be driving a red Ferrari through the winning tape with a checkered flag going down, say, Monte Carlo, for example. No, I'm not far wrong, am I? No, you're not far wrong. That would no. do it, wouldn't it? That would do me, man, yeah. Am I right in thinking that had people not got in your way and made you play this stupid game, probably we'd be talking about another world champion for Britain in oh, without Michael doubt, Carrick? Yeah. Without doubt, yeah. Without doubt, easier. See, you're pretending to joke <laughs> now. I, um, I, I didn't really actually get into that until... But it is a passion. Yeah. Oh, I love it, yeah. Absolutely love Formula One, yeah. I enjoy motor racing, I enjoy the bikes, but Formula One for me is yeah, just something that I've... What, really what, what's the... So you speak to somebody who's never had a driving licence, so I... I like, I, like, I like the whole thing in terms of... It's a big... Uh, it's about entertaining, isn't it? It's a whole show, basically. <laughs> but uh, the, the closer I've got to it and... Got to speak to people and got friends who sort of work in it. Just appreciating the skill levels of the team for starters to, to actually build the car, to get the car on track, the work they do through the weekend at, at Grand Prix, and seeing that sort of with your own eyes is just is incredible. But the drivers, what they have to go through, and the, the consistency of them, and just the, the mindset and everything is just something that I'm really, really appreciating. It's very, I mean, okay, there's a team behind you. And there are how many in the grid? I don't know, 20? 20, 22, was it? 22, 24, yeah. But at the top of most seasons, it's very, and at the top of most races, it's very one-on-one, isn't it? Yeah. It's very kind of me and you. Yeah, massive. Well, you look at you know, the last couple of years, sort of Hamilton and Rosberg in the same team, they've been going at it. And, you know, obviously Hamilton's pipped him over the last couple of years, but um, you see you're in the same team, but you're sharing the same information, but you're going against each other. and. As much as the team says, you know, they've won the Constructors' Championship and it's a team sport, at the end of the day, one's world champion, one's not. And, you know, the difference of that, of... Very. It's just it's it's massive. a tense it's just, situation, yeah, isn't even, it? You can't even put into words how big the difference is of that. It's so diff- It's just so different from what I'm used to, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's something that I'm just really interested in and really appreciate. Who would be your favourite driver? If you... I like, all time? All time? Yeah. I mean, I keep, I've watched... Senna's footage back so many yeah. times. I've gone back to Monaco and he's, he's like the onboard footage of him in Monaco driving with the, uh, with the old gear stick and one, one arm on the wheel and that's prop, proper driving. If you, if it feels you, more skilled, doesn't it? I, I've, it? It feels it, yeah. I think it's almost, you know, the skill. I, I just think it's different skills now. You look at mm. what the drivers have got to do now and you see the steering wheel for starters, the amount of buttons on the steering. So it's, it's a totally different skill set that you need to... Well, that's me saying it. I don't know that no, much, but looking no, the, at it, looking at it, I'm thinking yeah. it's, almost, it's so computerised in terms of the driver, the things they've got to go through and the different systems and all the sub-menus within that to 
within that, that one system that they can change during the race and between corners. It's just it's mind boggling. I don't know I don't know how they can do it. But back then it was yeah, it was basically, you know, it was raw raw driving and I mean to see him driving around Monaco so close to the barriers like that with one hand on the wheel sensational really. A few years ago I was at a promotional event and I stayed on to do some filming. It was at the Catalan Grand Prix circuit. Oh, yeah. And um I won't name the book manufacturer, but it was a book manufacturer, and two other star pupils were Leo Messi and David Villa. When they thought everybody had gone away, they got one of these Formula One shaped cars that's got a cockpit and a side cockpit, right, yeah. and they were driven around the circuit, and they jaunted their way down there, yeah. slid into it, and I saw them coming out. <laughs> they were ghosts, man. They were, oh, they were legs gone. They were holding each other up. Yeah. Scared the shit out of them. Yeah, they right, really yeah. did. Yeah. They scared the shit out of their employers if they'd seen them doing it as well, yeah, just ahead of the World Cup. But yeah. once you finish your professional career, would, would you would you race? Would you get involved? Would you? No, I don't. I'd is love it good to. enough just to learn and watch? I'd love and to. I'd love to. I'd, I'd done a track day before where you, um, I spent all, all day at the my, my, my brother and my dad, yeah, just the three of us on the track and Different cars and went round, went round the track, and that that was an experience. That so we done the single seaters like the old, it was like old yeah. Formula Ford type. Yeah, of I remember them. So we done that. So that was the old like centre like with the gears. Were you natural? How was your cornering? What? No, no, I was alright. I was alright. I beat my dad and my brother, so that was my <laughs> that was my benchmark. But, um, but yeah, that oh, was such a buzz. And then, uh, but I, I managed to um, put one into the barriers later on in the day, like. But, <laughs> I just said, just, 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 like. just got pushing the boundary, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Finding the limit. Just went over the limit. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I'd, I'd, just, I'd love to do more of that. Go-karting and stuff like that. I, I enjoy it. That's something that I really enjoy, but I don't think I'd be cut out to do it as uh, serious after that. Passes to make, goals to score, trophies to win, maybe even a, a European Championship and another Champions League before that day comes. Martin Neal, who are with me, would say, I have never, ever drawn a halt to any conversation voluntarily that I'm enjoying, least of all one like this. But because we're responsible, it's probably time to say thank you and let you go. I don't want to. I've got a million more questions, but maybe it means that in a year or two you might let us uh, come back and, and, and do the, the part two of the big interview. We've enjoyed this as much as we enjoy watching you playing. I always say this. We only talk to people who we genuinely admire, love watching you play football, we talked about our tactics, about embarrassing during the, the tape, but when I spoke to Pete Jensen last night at the camp now about going to chat to him, he said, well, tell him. He said, tell him. So last time I spoke to Chappie, we challenged him. They and Sid Lowe were saying, like, oh, who really, you know, who are the midfield? And it took them two people, one of which was Scholes, to get to you. You were third yeah. on Chappie's list. I'll tell you what, that ain't bad. I'll tell you that, yeah. He's not bad, is he? <laughs> <laughs> Got him, Chavi. If Chavi's ever done, we'll send him that. Man, a privilege. Thanks very much for having me. Privilege, Michael. Fantastic. Here's Michael Carrick, a gent. What's more, we watched Manchester United PSV with him that night, and it was fun. In fact, he may be, he and his family may be, the authors of one of our future guests on the big interview. We like Michael Carrick, but we spoke to him Thanks to you. The Kickstarter campaign that we ran was an experience not only because it was complicated and new, but because all of you were absolutely fantastic in your generosity and your enthusiasm and the fact that 
you decided to back us with hard-earned cash. None of the three of us can properly say how much we appreciate that because it allows us to continue doing things not only that you like, that you've enjoyed, that make us as content in our working lives as any of us have ever been. So thank you. One of the rewards that you were able to get as well as back in the big interview was the shout-out. And today we begin with Will Goodliffe, Stephen Love and Mark Zakalik. You're the first three, but you're the three that we love the most. You were there for us, we'll be there for you. Rainy nights, lonely nights, I'll be around at the drop of a hat. Or at least in the form of the big interview. Thanks for being there, no fooling around, it's hugely appreciated. And talking about this fun process of podcasting with football managers and footballers and Kevin Bridges, hi Kev. Yes, yes, you're a footballer too. One of the things we try to complement it with is the website, grahamhunter.tv, where you already know that if you join the mailing list, we'll tell you first about everything that we're up to. But we'll also write blogs about the majority of the interviews, and there'll be a Michael Carrick blog there soon. Get on to grahamhunter.tv. If you, if you like this and you want to spread the word, go on to iTunes. You can leave a review. Phone people up. Randomly tell people in the street. You know, that's the kind of medium this is. Every time we get to speak to a footballer, we have the joy of putting on beer jacket before and afterwards. And then we add some music too. Ba-boom. It's Christmas time. Support beer jacket. Tremendously talented man. You can buy Christmas music for yourself, for your family and friends. Beer jacket. Remember the name out there. Backpage came up with the idea and produced this and have been towers of strength and creativity throughout and again it's because of them that we get to entertain you and speak to these wonderful football people both them and Alex Aidy are with me as I record this for the first time they're pretending to be supportive in fact they're looking over what I do to make sure that there's no more mucking about the end is nigh at least the end of this episode but as they used to say in the cinemas every James Bond film when they say Bond will be back so thanks to you with the big interview, and soon. See ya.